people refer business to me and here's what they say to the person when they refer them. You need to talk to Jack Daly. He probably has the solution for you. But if he doesn't, he will find someone who does. That's the best. That's showing love. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Welcome back to the Selling with Love podcast. This is your host, Jason Mark Campbell. Today, I have a legend in the field of sales and entrepreneurship who has done so many incredible things in his career from growing companies, building sales team, and writing incredible books when it comes to having hyper sales growth, which is the title of the book, of course. I have Jack Daly with me. The man has been a leader in sales training for the last 30 years and has extensive experience as an executive within large organizations, so in which you might have heard of such as enterprise the car rental company which by the time he was working there got it into being one of the companies of the year with that has experience not only in sales in business growth but has also been an ultra marathon runner, a iron man runner so i have a lot of respect for a man that does difficult things and it conquers that as well has been a captain in the u.s army has written these books and has also built six companies into national firms along the way the list of accomplishments that he's done is so impressive and the amount of people that he's trained in sales, entrepreneurship, and business growth. It's astounding. And the fact that I have him coming on the show to share some of his wisdom is a privilege. And we're going to talk about growing sales teams, building sales, having growth, and what are some of the misconceptions that we need to overcome if we're going to be going out in sales ourselves. Jack, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Geez, Jason, with all of what you just said, I'm thinking I'm probably somewhere between 150 to 200 years old. (laughs) (laughs) how do you do it no actually i had a very interesting thing i wanted to ask you which is you know part of that bio that kind of struck me is you've built a lot of different sales teams in these large organizations and you know in my early sales career i had little sales teams that i've worked with five six people and salespeople are an interesting character in general maybe some strong personalities but You've built sales teams of hundreds of people. And I'd be curious to know, like where most people sometimes find a salesperson is a difficult person to deal with. How is it like managing large sales teams with all the different personalities and getting them all to work together towards reaching a business goal? Wow. We could go 45 minutes to an hour on one answer to a question. I'm going to compress it. There's about 8 billion people on the planet. And if we think of it in that context, they're all people that, quote unquote, need to be sold to by somebody. And when I use the word selling, it's a word that's tarnished quite a bit over the years. And I tell people this, I would never sell anybody anything that I wouldn't sell to my mother. And my definition of selling is help people with their needs, opportunities, and problems in the best way that I can, even if it means not me. Over 20% of all of the leads that come into me today, when I go through the diagnostics of whether I'm the right fit and I'm the solution, about 20% of the time, I think somebody else would do a better job and I pass that along. 
And so I'm not trying to sell anybody anything because people by and large don't want to be sold. So the definition that I get for selling is help them to buy. And the subtle difference between selling someone something and helping them to buy is profound. Now, that that clears up a lot in terms of sales. Now let's go over to your question about you know, a large sales force and that type of thing and the types of personalities. Well, I started with 8 billion people on the planet because how do we deal with all of those types of personalities? And I think we would make a misjudgment to think that these people that have chosen the profession, profession of selling, happen to be these pushy, uh, in it for themselves type of people. Uh, that's not who I am at all. And the sales people that I was attracted to were people that were more like me, that they're disciplined, they're self-motivated, they've got grit, and they care. When you care more about the customer than you do about the sell, you'll end up selling more than anyone else out there. So I take the same approach in building a sales team. What I'm looking for is, are the people that I'm talking to about joining in, are they in alignment with my values? Are they in alignment with my philosophy of selling? Because I don't need that, if you will, that bull in a china shop, the I've got my own style and get out of my way and I do things my way and push and shove and quite frankly, piss a lot of people off in the organization and outside of the organization and bully their way to their numbers. That's just not a company that I want to be represented as. And therefore, those individuals in the recruiting process and the interview process, quote unquote, don't make the cut. I don't care what your numbers are. I need to have you consistent with my culture and with my values. So, you know, I've built six companies from scratch into national firms in the U.S., all extremely fast growing. I live today in California. I grew up on the East Coast of the States in the Philadelphia area. And I moved to California for the weather. And I started the company with four people. And 18 months later, all organic growth, we were 750 people operating out of 22 different locations in the States. So the history is fast growing, but it gets to be easier in my mind when you have the approach that I'm taking philosophically, which is it's all about helping somebody get where they want. And if the product or the service isn't a good fit, then find a good fit somewhere else for them. I love that you actually put so much attention on sales culture and how it removes a lot of the headaches that most people would assume comes with working with salespeople. But I'd be curious. I mean, you've been in this industry for a while and you've seen a lot of the people that have that natural, call it the stereotypical aggressive sales behavior. And I speak with you and everything you share right now, I'm like, yeah, that sounds to make sense. Helping people probably is more effective than being this aggressive salesperson. But why is it that we're so attached to the idea that that's what's successful when you are in sales? Like, why do we feel like we look at a wolf of Wall Street and we're like, we need to do this or we're going to fail in sales or in business? Yeah, so there's a difference, Jason, in my mind between being a bully and being someone who is goal-driven, who is disciplined, 
uh, who has grit. You're talking with a guy, me, who in the hours of the day, I'm probably going to get up earlier than most. I'm probably going to work later than most. I'm going to use the word leverage, which is focusing on the things that are the highest payoff activities for me and delegating a lot of the things that an awful lot of people are involved in that are necessary in selling, but not necessarily for me to do. And so when you look at how my day is, it's packed. It's packed by design. When I graduated from college, let's do this. When I graduated from college a long, long time ago as an accountant and worked for what was known as the big eight accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, you had to track your time in 15 minute increments. When I was in the army and promoted along the way to captain, your time was all about the discipline use of your time. So my days are intentionally one appointment after another appointment after another appointment. But if I'm in that selling mode, those appointments are with prospects. I've got an agenda. I'm trying to move that deal down the line. And if I'm the best fit for that person, whatever their their wounds are or their needs are or their pains are, or if I can push them to a place of pleasure, if I feel like I'm the best solution they have, I'm like a dog with a bone and I just am not going to give it up. Now, I don't think that's something to throw me into a pile that says he's a bully. But again, if I go back to my mom, I love my mom, right? And so I've had situations where I remember her not buying into what I was selling, and yet I wouldn't give up. That wasn't being a bully. That was, I figured this out. Let me show you. I have a sister that's 10 years younger than I am. And when she was in high school, she was really troubled as to, you know, what she's going to do in life. And she was going in directions that weren't in her best interest. And I'm the 10 year older brother. My father had passed away. And so my best advice for Francine was we ought to put her in the military. Now, my mother's mindset was military is male, not female. And all she could conjure up in her mind was sending her to battle or putting her in a life in danger. And so, but I knew having gone into the military and experienced what went on there and the opportunities for travel and to see a broader picture of the world and to get an idea of systems, processes, discipline, getting your act together in terms of how you live in the barracks and your responsibility for your bed and your equipment and so forth and so on. Get all of that bundled together and spend a few years there and you're going to come out an incredibly positively different human being. Now, it took the better part of a year to move my mom to, I'm for this. And even when she said I was for it, it was not, let me go down the street and be at the head of the parade. But the sales guy in me got it done. And Francine today is the beneficiary of that. And my mother lived long enough to see that it was the right call. Hmm. I love that story because oftentimes people will perceive when we talk about, you know, taking care of the client, being helpful is perceived instead as being very 
passive in your sales approach. And when we look at the more aggressive, call it sales bullies, it seems like no matter what they chase the sale, but what you're speaking about is actually, no, when you actually care, you put in that extra energy to make the right thing happen. When you feel and know that it's worth the risk to go out there and make the transaction happen in their best interest. I love that. <laughs> Let me show it to you this way. Let's do it pictorially. If you were to watch a movie about sales people, if you were to see drawings or photos of salespeople in action, the prospects on one side of the table and the salesperson's on the other side. That's the picture. I don't believe in selling that way. I sit side by side with the prospect. We're a partnership. We're trying to figure it out together. And I'm very open about what I can do and what I can't do. And all I need to understand is, why did the person agree to talk with me, meet with me today? Evidently, they've got some type of need. And the quicker I can analyze what it is and see if I'm the right fit for them. And again, if I'm not, then let's figure out who and what is, right? And, you know, you've done your homework and we were chatting a little bit before we got started here. And for me, it's one big, big word in sales, and that's trust. Selling at the end of the day is the transfer of trust. People do business with people they trust. Uh, look, when you went through and introduced me with all these different accomplishments, you left one big one off. I met my wife at 16 years old and her name was Bonnie. I lost her to cancer about six years ago, but we had 47 years of marriage together. We had a great run. And between February of 2017 and November of 17, when I lost her, we had time to kind of roll the picture backwards and realize how much we were grateful for. Bonnie would never have characterized herself as a salesperson. There's no way because she had that mental thing that you just opened this conversation up with. And I remember when I got into the sales training business, I had a trade booth and I really wanted to knock on the doors of all the other people with trade booths, but it was just me, but Bonnie had come along and we were in Chicago and I said, well, look, stand in the booth and represent me and I'm going to walk around. And she's like, I couldn't do that, Jack. I'm not a salesperson. And I said, well, just sit over on the side and let me show you how I greet people and interact with them. And I'll do three, four or five people. And let's see if you're comfortable with that. And after four people, she came to me and she said, well, I could do that. That's not selling. And it was, it was just not from her frame of reference. I love that you share this story because it's almost like the most common thing that I hear is when you have a bad experience to have a transaction, you start blaming how sales are terrible. When you have a great transaction, you stop labeling as, as sales. And I think that does a disservice to the industry because now we don't have the right role models. And oh my God, I hope YouTube doesn't give me dirt about saying this, but it's almost like us learning about sales through movies is like somebody trying to find how to work a relationship by looking at adult entertainment. <laughs> and so we have all of these like <laughs> bad references. And I'm so glad that I get to host this podcast, have conversations with people like you to bring awareness that what you're seeing on TV is not the way that it actually works and is successful. So it's such a breath of fresh air. <laughs> you're going to go down a classic 
with that example. No question about it. In fact, I'm going to be talking about it for some time now. By the way, as a professional speaker, you know, there is the three-part rule. The first time that I tell that story, I'm actually going to use your name. And the next time I'm going to say, I was in conversation with somebody and they mentioned this. And then the third time and forever after it will be mine. You know, it's so funny. I mean, I've been in this industry and that's one thing that I always do. And you're right. The first times you say it, you kind of credit it to the source. You have to do it. But at some point, everything that we learn is kind of an absorption of the collective consciousness. And it all becomes in the interest of being able to make the point that, hey, we're trying to make sure that we grow into this fashion. Now, this is something I want to beat the drum on because so far I've heard you say, I believe I've counted four times, but somebody will have to replay to see if we actually said four times, maybe five, mentioning the word discipline. And I'd be curious to hear more about where does discipline play as an indicator of success, whether it's particularly more important in the field of sales or it's just one of those traits you find is the most important for any career development? Good follow-up. I like it. So I mentioned HPAs. I didn't do it that way. I mentioned them as high payoff activities. Too many salespeople spend too much time on too many things that don't contribute to getting deals done. Uh, and when I'm working with a company, I try to figure out with them, what are the real high payoff activities? For me, I, I make sales real simple from an internal standpoint of the company. Win new customers or grow the ones you have. And so what activities are you working on that you either do one of those two functions. If what you're working on doesn't contribute in some way, then you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe it's necessary, but you could outsource it in some way to somebody else. There's a very important number for your listeners to jot down, and that is 168. Every person on the planet is given the same number of hours each week. That's just math. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 168. But in the sales profession, we don't get 168 hours. If you read and study what's in your best interest to live a long, healthy life, you need about eight hours a day of sleep. Nine might even be better, but let's just use eight times seven days is 56. I just slept through 56 of my 168. We got to eat. We have to exercise. We have to do some social things. We probably have some interests that we want to do sporting-wise. We, You and I were talking about reading earlier today. And so all of a sudden, you're down to 40 to 60 hours that you might have at play to be in the sales profession. Well, I better be really guarded about those 40 to 60 hours. And the world and the people around you almost conspire to suck up that 40 to 60 with stuff that isn't necessarily going to get you to hit your numbers, to go out and do the necessary prospecting activities and so forth that you need to do. So I'm going to take it offline for just a moment, get out of the sales world for a second and show you something. This is near me all the time. I carry it with me. It goes everywhere that I go. 
For those of you who are only listening on the podcast, we're seeing a notebook being brought up by Jack. And so I just want to make sure I'm doing the closed captioning. <laughs> <laughs> so inside here are my personal goals. And you could go to my website at jackdailysales.com and you would find that this is published for the world to see. That just increased my accountability big time. I give that to five people that I call the board of directors of my life. And I say, look, these are the things I really want to get done this year. And about four times a year, just call me up and go line by line and see if I'm doing what I said I was going to do. So that's five people, four times a year. That's 20 times a year. Somebody's calling me out on what I said I was going to accomplish. Now, inside this notebook, it's actually a calendar. And what I'm holding up here is every day I write down everything I did that day that relate to anything that's in my personal goals. At the end of every month, I have my HPAs, high payoff activities of my life, and I put a monthly total, and I have a month-by-month accounting as to how that's going, and I can look at where I was last year for a month-to-month, year-to-year lookup. I have been doing this process, Jason, since I was 13 years old. I have 61 years of these logs. That's what I've been doing on the personal side of my life. And what I can tell you is, from a business standpoint as a salesperson, I'm doing the same thing with my 40 to 60 hours that I'm applying in my business and making sure that I'm disciplined enough to do what I said I was going to do. Now, let me just go just a little bit further. I talked about my incredible relationship with my wife, Bonnie. And she was a gourmet chef. Uh, There's not a restaurant that I can remember eating in that was better than whatever I was served at all. She was a stay-at-home mom, and she took care of their two children and me. And some nights she would spend three, four hours just to cook a meal for us. But the number of times that at three o'clock in the afternoon, I would call her and say, I'm really sorry, but my day was shot with putting out a fire here and putting out a fire there. And I've only gotten halfway through the things I said I was going to get done today. And so just put that into the fridge and I'll mic it up. And I know that's terrible, but I can't go home today without getting through the things I said I needed to do in order to be successful as a selling professional. That's discipline. Do what you say you're going to do, when you say you're going to do it, whether you want to or not. That's self-discipline. Now, when I said, hey, I may not be the best salesperson out there that I compete, I may not have the best product, I may not have the best price, I may not have the best service, but I'm going to be pretty high in my industry as a salesperson because I do the things that most people aren't willing to do. They're not willing to make that phone call and stay and chop through the list. They don't have the discipline of allocating throughout the day all the things they need to do in order to be successful. They don't have an annual plan. They don't have it broken down by quarter, by month, by week, by day. I do. 
And I have benefited in my personal life because of that discipline. And I have benefited massively on the business side. And what a beautiful thing to take my clients and to take my salespeople into a level of revenues and income that they could never, ever have ever imagined them being in because they adopted the proven systems and processes that are all structured around discipline. That's it. Mm, I love that. And Jack, not to brag, but I have a similar way of operating in my life. But interestingly enough, I'm actually using like spreadsheets and I have my annual goals, quarterly goals, monthly. I have my accountability group, which is my board of advisor. And we talk every week, actually, and making sure that we're staying on track of that, which brings me to something I find very interesting in the way that you've structured it is you've shown me your notebook. You've opened up your physical calendar, everything that's written down. And I found it very interesting. Somebody once shared about how from the 90s to today, we've had so many leaps and bounds with technology allowing us to be, oh my God, what percentage more productive could you be having the tools and all this tech but they've noticed there was actually no significant changes in output from the office. And so I'd be curious to know your views on sales, particularly CRMs are out, automation tools are out, and it would allow us to reach more people than we ever thought possible. And I know from the beginning of your career, you're probably looking at the ways that we can reach people through LinkedIn and all those different platforms being a dream compared to how you had to do it back in the day. And so I'd be curious to see with this access to technology, are you seeing people be more effective in sales or are you seeing a drop in discipline and productivity? Another great question, by the way. So there is an incredible opportunity to leverage technology in sales. Whether people are accessing it is a different question. We get a tremendous amount of pushback by salespeople about staying current with their CRM. It doesn't matter which one you choose, less than 20% of the capabilities are actually turned on and being utilized. This is an interesting thing. I'm remarried to a woman by the name of Karen, and she was a client of mine for over 20 years. No way did we ever see ourselves together. And Bonnie and I used to go out with Karen and her husband, dinner dates and that type of thing. When Bonnie passed away, Karen was at the memorial service. And four years ago this month, quite frankly, she and I were at dinner catching up after a six-week Southeast Asia tour of mine. And we got up from dinner and we kissed and we've been kissing ever since. Now, where's the story going? Well, she moves in with me and she sees me every day updating this book and and for 20-some years, she's been hearing about these processes. And she's seeing all the things I'm accomplishing. And she goes, I never took action to get one of those books. And so I went and bought her this calendar thing and walked her through it. And what her feedback is now is that the physical nature of writing it down, because she used to use different methodologies that were technically driven, she said, I have to look at this every day and write it down. And my day hasn't begun because I update in the early morning and so does she. She goes, I don't want to have two days in a row of a bad run. When I'm writing down what took place yesterday and if I'm not happy with that, well, I'm not going to have two unhappy days. And the act of writing it down. So 
not only have I won Karen over, but I'm going to tell you that I've won hundreds and hundreds of people over. I'm not suggesting, I am not suggesting to the listener to give up on technology, but I am telling you that you need to find what works for you. If you're trying to stay focused on getting work done and eating throughout the day is something you think about, have to decide, and you're not sure what to do, and you just wish an option was available where the right meal with all of the specifications you want be available to you, easy to make, under two minutes, well, luckily for you, Factor is available where you have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie. And you can enjoy over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons to help you make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. So what are you waiting for? You can get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking up for something fast that's upscale option done very easily. It's flexible on your schedule where you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. No prep necessary. They're 100% ready to heat and eat. So there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup necessary. Head to factormeals.com slash sellingwithlove50 and use code sellingwithlove50 to get 50% off. That's code sellingwithlove50 at factormeals.com slash sellingwithlove50 and you'll get 50% off. Not bad. So when I'm in the sales world, it's a lot more complex than my personal life. I've got a couple pages of goals there that I showed you. When I'm dealing with a, a prospect list of potentially hundreds, when I know that with a new prospect, the average number of touches before they know you even exist is nine. And they can't all be buy from me, buy from me, buy from me, because now you're selling. And so they've got to be a different mix of how you go about touching them. And then it's got to be a different content. And most of it's got to be driven towards being something that's helpful to them, not selling anything. And it's chaos if you were to try to do that manually. I can actually design a touch system and do that design in a day, and then I can have an assistant of mine execute through the technology, through database management and a touch system and a contact management system, and they're going to actually do it better than me because here I am, 74 years old. I didn't grow up with that, but a 25-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 18-year-old assistant will knock that out quicker and better and more efficiently than me. And my time is worth more than what I can pay that person to do those things for. So, you know, it's all about how do you manage that 168 hours. And I don't want to be in front of a computer. That's not my talent. I don't want to be in front of a computer when I could have somebody else be in front of a computer doing those things for me and me showing FaceTime with prospects and customers that will generate more business either with new customers or growing the ones that I have. That's where the rubber really meets the road. So people are always saying to me, it's amazing how much you get done. And I go, well, I don't have any more hours than anybody else does. So evidently, we're just working on different things. Mm, I love that. Well, you know, I'm just going to highlight as well that to me, 
I'm a technology person. I love working on a computer. I have two screens even as I record this. I love these kinds of fancy gadgets. But every time I find myself having a sense of overwhelm, and for those who are listening, I'm holding my own little notebook, I was feeling anxiety. And to me, as soon as I lose access to the notebook and I can't write down, as you say, what I'm going to do, it's therapeutic. And it's so funny because I've been like this forever where it's like, I'll start physically writing down. I don't even know if I have a look at 80% of the stuff that I write down, but the therapeutic activity of writing it down keeps me so focused. It makes me go to bed at night with a clear head. And that's the system that works for me. And so finding a bit of a hybrid between the physical, which I feel is so much more tangible and then complementing it with a technology, I think is where I find the most effectiveness. And I think we often overemphasize how technology is supposed to solve our problems when I've just seen accelerate the chaos that you speak about if you're not really holding it. Let me also reinforce something about writing it down. There's studies that have been done that prove that we remember things better when we take notes. You know, if I were to teach sales and do it in a very quick way, it would be four words, ask questions and listen, right? That's selling. And so I'm a copious note taker and it's all by handwritten. Now I may summarize it later in a, a computer environment type of thing so that I have those notes stored away and I can access them and so forth. But I have been taking notes on every conversation my entire life because it helps me with remembrance, right? And I also want to go back to something else. We're talking about efficiency of your time. And my first sales job was seven years old. So I owned the market and charged twice the price of every kid I competed with. Okay. So that's when I got the sniffer that said, this sales game is something I like play. Right. I don't need to do hide and seek and I don't need to do tag. Nobody's paying me to do that, but I can knock on doors and sell stuff. This is a blast. Right. So I found my passion at seven, but at 12, I took a newspaper route from a kid and it was 32 customers and a year later it was 275. Now, I loved growing it from 32 to 275. That's what I really liked. But here I am in the Philadelphia suburbs and it's cold and it's snow and it's ice and it's dark. And I go to school during the day. My mom makes me do my homework before I can deliver my papers. And now I'm out slugging around in the dark delivering 275 papers. I don't have any more time to sell anymore. It ain't fun. I want to quit. And then the light bulb went on and said, you have to be 12 years old to have a newspaper route. So I'm going to recruit kids that are 10 and 11. And I'm going to divide the 275 up and give them to them. And then pay them half of what I get paid. And I'll be able to sell some more right? So at 13 years old, they were doing 100% of the work and I was keeping 70% of the money. Now, if the listener said, well, wait a second, he just said he split the money 50-50. Yeah, I did on what the paper company paid me, but I didn't split the tips and I collected. So that made it 70% cut for me, 30% for the five kids delivering the papers. And I had five assistants at 13. And ever since then, look, here's a one-liner that any listener can take away. If you don't have an assistant, you are one, right? That's it. So, you know, when I talked about getting married at an early age to my wife, Bonnie, 
I said, look, we better understand each other because I want this thing to go the long run. I'll never do anything around the house. One, if there's nothing around this house that's attractive for me to do. I'll never own a tool set. I don't want to hold a hammer. I won't get any psychic value and I won't be any good at it. And I'm not telling you to do it. I'll always figure out how to make enough money that we could hire somebody to do it. But you make the decision. You do it or hire somebody else. But don't look at me because I'm never going to do it. And so I spent my whole life saying no to all kinds of things, both in my personal life and in my business. I think this ability to say no is probably one of the things we need to really nurture to have more of that discipline and be more effective because there's so much that gets thrown at us in the process. Today's world's noisy and it seems like we're being told to say yes to so many things. So we feel a little overwhelmed. I love this level of clarity that you have on your high value activities, which makes me actually want to ask about a lot of the salespeople you work with. We all consider ourselves busy regardless of what we do, but I know there's a lot of those activities that are perceived high value, but are actually a waste of time. Have you noticed what are the big demons that people need to let go of to be able to be more effective? Yeah, look, I teach people about the nine touches before you're going to get noticed. If you're personally doing any of that, personally doing any of it, I would have a big question mark as to whether you're investing your time correctly. Yep. I'm not a big proponent of a salesperson sitting in an office or behind a desk or behind a computer and spending time on the keyboard. I can get somebody else to do those things for me. I'm a professional speaker. I have five assistants. They all work out of their homes. They all do different things. And I tell them, look, there's only three things that I do in this business. One, I speak because I like it and people have told me I'm decent at it. Two, I travel to where I speak. And that's just because I haven't figured out how to get everybody to come to my house. So the nature of the business is you got to travel. Fortunately, I love to travel. And the third thing is I have fun. And anything else, you five people sort it out and figure it out. Now, I will tell you the reality is I get emails regularly from these guys and I have to read it and sit, reply all and say, somehow this mistakenly came to me. Remember, I only do three things, speak, travel, fun, figure it out, right? That's saying no. And that you're right. You have to say no a lot. So let's give an example as a speaker. Pre-pandemic, I would average 200 to 250,000 air miles a year. In 2019, I was in over 30 countries. When I'm in a country, all of a sudden we get requests that say, could you stop at two more cities while you're in the area? And we have to make the travel changes and that type of thing. The majority of professional speakers handle personally their own travel. They just sit on their laptop and make the changes and put the whole thing together. And I'm sitting here going, I've run a $23 billion company when I was in my 40s. And now I'm going to sit here and become a travel agent? This does not make any sense. That's that's a, that's not a high payoff activity for me. So I've had speakers come to me and say, man, in a 20-year period of time, you've written 10 books. And I've not written one because I can't figure out how to figure out where the time to write the book is. But look, if I took hyper sales growth and it's a relatively short book of a couple hundred pages 
there's 15 chapters. Each chapter is about, uh, call it 15 pages. And it's big print. And I'm going, could you write a chapter a week? Because if you wrote a chapter a week in four months, you'd be done. And so how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You got to break all this stuff down. And when you break all these things down in the sales role, then figure out how many of them can I give to other people? I don't want to deliver papers anymore. I'm always saying that. So Karen and I are in a relatively new relationship, four years. And when we travel together, she goes online and gets the seats and does the book and then shows up at the airport and stands at a kiosk and puts the baggage tags. And I'm like, that's not a high payoff activity for me. I just go up to the person at the desk and say, hey, that's your job. Do all that. Uh, and somehow it gets done without me being on my computer doing all the stuff that she's doing. Uh, so, you know, I'm an incredibly disciplined person. I figure out how much is my time worth per hour. And every time that I figure that out, I go, well, then this certainly doesn't qualify. So don't do that. Jack, I hear you speak. And I feel like for most people, this is the dream. This is where we want to be. And I also want to call in the other side of the spectrum, which is calling out any kind of delusion, because somebody could be listening to this and going like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I just want to speak. I just want to have fun and I just want to travel. So I'm not going to do any of these low activities. And so, but then there's none of the high paying activities. There's no lineup of speaks and talks that are coming up. There's not a list of clients. You're kind of at the early stage. And it's almost like you're not doing those necessary early stage activities, which is, I would call a bit more grindy. So do you have a process or a call out for anybody who might be living in this kind of delusion, hearing your story and realize, oh, yeah, I don't want to do anything because I'm a high value person. <laughs> That's so good. All right. So between 26 and 46, I built and ran six pretty sizable companies. Largest sales force was 2,600. Biggest balance sheet was 23 billion. And I got wasted on it. Like I didn't want to do it anymore. You couldn't pay me enough money. I just wasn't having fun anymore. And so I just pulled the club and I figured I'd take a year off and figure out what I'm going to do next. And all of a sudden the phone started ringing and people were going, Hey, if you're not doing anything, could you come in and talk to our salespeople at this company? Could you talk at this trade group? Could you do this? Could you? And it was all around the speaking business. And after three or four months, I said to Bonnie, gosh, I'm liking doing this. I think I'm going to do some more of this. And that's how I got into the business. But as rosy as that sounds, compared to what I was making in the entrepreneur running a business world, I characterized myself as the starving speaker. My first two to three years as a speaker, I had to be in the muck so deep because I didn't have a big portfolio of business. Look, I'm going to speak, I'm going to travel, and I'm going to have fun. All right, well, you don't have any speaking gigs to travel to. You don't have to worry about having travel. And by the way, if you don't have any speaking gigs, you don't have any cash flow, so the fun is out of the party as well. All you're going to do is sit home and watch TV or something. So 
you know, my first marathon, I've run a hundred marathons. My first marathon was at 46 years old. And why did I end up running a marathon at 46? Well, that's because when I exited the business entrepreneur side and got into the speaking business, I was so stressed out that the only way that I could operate after 12 hour days, six days a week, trying to launch my speaking business, I just had to go run to, to just like the stress was significant, right? So yeah, a good call out on me, speak, travel, fun, but it took several years to get to that level. And look, it took a lot of work to go from 32 customers in the newspaper delivery to 275 in a year. That's knocking on a whole bunch of doors and getting a lot of rejection and doing all the things you need to do on the sales side. So I just look at each thing in life. At 58, I did my first Ironman. But what's interesting about that is I didn't know how to swim at 58. That's a 2.4 mile swim, 3.8 kilometer swim on the clock, right? And then a 180 kilometer bike and then a 42K run all together, right? Now, I was a runner, and I figured I could get back on the bike and figure it out, but swimming was a whole thing under itself. My first year in the Ironman sport trying to get to that level was a lot of absolute grunt work. It's not something that you could delegate. It was not something you give to the assistant, and there's a bunch of stuff that needs to take place in building whatever it is you are building in your life where you've got to put in the work for years in order to get to the stage where all of a sudden, look, Jim Collins calls it the flywheel, right? And in the beginning, you're struggling to move it. Well, at this stage of my career, that flywheel is just ripping and rolling, right? And so I get to pick and choose. There's only so many gigs that I'm going to take in a year, and then I'm dealing them out to other people because I just don't want to invest as much time doing that. But that's not the way it was in the first two, three years. It was starving speaker time. Jack, I love that we were able to address both sides of this coin because, yeah, I love that we have a vision and we get pulled towards that. And I think, like I said, this is the goal. But actually acknowledging that hard work, I think, just makes a perfect picture of what is the grind that's required for us to get to the level that you speak of, which is absolutely amazing, the journey that you've been on. I have a question I wanted to ask because, you know, discipline, being hungry, you know, and caring for people enough to push them into a direction that you feel is in their best interest, which we spoke about earlier in the call, is kind of a balance between, you know, going out there and being kind of impatient as opposed to most people who just relax and wait for things to come to them. So as an effective person, you're going to be impatient. But at the same time, when you speak about the results that you have in your life, there was a certain level of patience, I would imagine, was required for you to understand that as we're going towards a larger goal, we have to understand certain things take time. I just want to hear your thoughts around your relationship with being patient versus being a go-getter. Yeah. I don't know whether you're aware of it, but last year I released my most recent book and it's called Jack Daly's Life by Design. It's the first book that's not about business that I wrote. It's about following a process and living an intentionally led life that is exceptional. And it's my life story combined with the templates and the process to literally sit down and design an exceptional life. Well, in there, 
there's a number of examples of exactly what you're talking about. For example, I watched Julie Moss crawl across the finish line and a hundred yards before the finish line of the Ironman to end up in second place. And she was leading the race in Hawaii. And I just watched and said, my God, what a human being is capable of doing. I wonder if I could ever do something like that. And then a couple of days later, I said, bullshit, I'm putting that in my bucket list and I'm going to do that. But at the time, my kids were young. I was building a business. I was hiring and leading people. And there's only 168 hours in a week. And I couldn't see myself finding the time to allocate to do the proper preparation on the Ironman. So that's a 25-hour-a-week training schedule, and there's only so many hours in a day. So I put it in the bucket list and said, okay, when I don't have my companies and the responsibility to my employees, when I don't have my kids at home because I want to spend time with them when they're younger, then the only person that's making a sacrifice is my wife, Bonnie, and she would make any sacrifice for me and be supportive. And that's why it took me until 58 to start the Ironman. It was sitting out there. It was tangible. It was a goal. And I knew I was going to get to it, but it didn't meet the priorities of the day at that stage of my life. We have the same challenge in our businesses. There are certain times that we need to like knuckle down on stuff. And there are times where, well, I'd like to be able to do that, but I'm not positioned well enough to do that. So that'll have to wait for another time. Choices and I think a bit of a delayed gratification tolerance to work on the things that are the most important. In 2000, I have this because it happened a week ago. One of my partners gave me this medal that says the top 100 golf courses. So in the year 2000, to be exact, I started on February 27th in 2000. And I said, I'm going to play the top 100 golf courses in the U.S. And two weeks ago, less than that, I finished it uh, on August 13th of 2023. So there were the four courses that I finished up two weeks ago. Now, that's 23 years in the making to get that bucket list item done. But in the first five years, I had over 50 of the courses done. But then other things started to take prioritization. And I had to backpedal and backstore these and eventually, you know, and then we have a pandemic that gets in the way and so forth and so on. And so other things start to take more priority. So I've got a bucket list and I've got life plans. And then I narrow them down to five-year and 10-year plans and then one year. And some things don't make the cut. Karen and I are going to do the hike into Machu Picchu this year. Now, it'll be my third time. It'll be Karen's first. And while she's younger than I am, she ain't like 20 years younger than I am. She's six years younger than I am. 
And we've not been the Prague, neither one of us. And we hear all these great things about Prague. And when we sat down and did our goals, I said, hiking in the Machu Picchu is a lot more of an undertaking than visiting Prague. So even if I need a crutch or some wheelchair, I can roll around Prague, but we can't do Machu Picchu like that. So we better put Machu Picchu in this year. So we had to push Prague back into 2024. Prague's been on our list for five years now, Mm. right? So it's that type of discipline. That's about the half a dozen times now I've used the word, but that's the kind of discipline that is required to identify the trade-offs on what are the HPAs in maximizing your life or maximizing your business. Jack, there's one question I always ask anybody who comes on the show, which I usually ask them to answer in about 30 to 60 seconds, which is you are on the Selling with Love podcast. So I'd love to ask you, what does Selling with Love mean to Jack Daly? I mentioned it earlier. I'll do it again. When you get to the level where you care more about the customer than you do about the sell, you will sell more than anyone else out there. Jason, people refer business to me. 90% of my business, by the way, is repeat and referral. It's a beautiful place to be. People refer business to me, and here's what they say to the person when they refer them. You need to talk to Jack Daly. He probably has the solution for you. But if he doesn't, he will find someone who does. That's the best. That's showing love. That's showing that you really care. And when you do that love and care business, then it's trust. That's what happens. You can trust You're not going to be assaulted by me. You're just going to find somebody that gets side by side with you, not across the table, and tries to put whatever I've got in my history together and say, hey, have you thought about doing this and going in this direction? And if it happens to be a service that I offer, a product that I offer, they can buy that. If it doesn't, that's cool too. Look, play the long game, not the short game. Build the relationships don't do transactions. Transactions is working too hard. Yeah. This game of sales, it can be really easy. Jack, this has been a fantastic conversation. I feel like we could keep going forever, but I want to make sure we wrap this up beautifully. And some of the key things I took from this conversation, for one, I love that we started about sales culture and demystifying a lot of the myths around being a bully around sales, which is not what we're talking about here. And once you start understanding that you're building this culture of caring, you're building this culture of taking care of the customer, not only do you get more results from a sales perspective, but you get a lot less headaches as a sales manager and as a business owner. We talked about how to have this discipline that's always having us focus on high value activities, although you have an acronym that you need to remind me of, Jack. HPAs, high payoff activities, but you were there. High payoff activities. And so we get to be relentless with our own calendar and start being very organized and intentional about where our time goes. You've reminded us of the 168 hours, making sure that we all have the same time, but people have different results. So what's the difference is being intentional about how we spend those hours. We've went a bit into the debate about technology versus the manual 
pen and paper and making sure that, you know, if it works for you, do not neglect the simple and basic things that can be done. I know there's tools on Jack's website that you can go and acquire so it can help you get started on some proper journaling techniques as well as ways to allocate your time and be effective. And don't think technology is going to solve all your problems. Sometimes it's just going to accelerate the chaos. Looking at how you live a disciplined life that translates into the goals you have in business, having that balance of knowing where you want to end up and focusing on those, but doing the work that's necessary to get there makes it that you will have one hell of a journey. And I have to say, Jack, just in general, from a conversation I had with you, I love the place that you are in life. And I think that you embody the type of role model that I would love to be on a path on. So I'm so glad we were able to have this conversation. And I think there's a lot more that I can learn from you. So I'm excited to dive into your literature because I'm always trying to learn from people that are a place in their life that I would love to see myself go towards. And this was just a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. So with that, Jack, once again, thank you so much for your time. For all you listeners, we're going to have some links to the books about sales. Hyper sales growth is what we talked about. If you are in a sales team and you want to get to the next level, powerful, powerful book. But life by design is going to be something that's probably going to apply to the majority of you on how to get results in your personal life and professional life using some of the models from Jack's life. And I think they're all wonderful. So we'll have that all available in the show notes. And of course, as you go out there, keep selling with love. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast.